Well, it's good to be here with you this morning, and uh, I thank you for the, the opportunity to preach when Jared is, is away. Uh, I know that's not something that uh, is, is taken lightly, and so thank you for that, and thank you for, for trusting me to fill in for him. Um, and he's grateful to be able to, to have a weekend off. He wishes he were here, but it is good for he and his family uh, to have a break, just, like, just as it is for all of us. To, to take a rest sometimes. So today we're going to be talking about truth, as we've already mentioned. What is truth? All you have to do is turn on the news and watch two different stations to know that that can be a hard thing to find sometimes. When we see two different news stories from different perspectives, we can ask ourselves, what is truth? When we hear about world events and we, we hear things said such as war crimes and we hear words like genocide and then we hear stories from differing perspectives that have other ends to them or, or other explanations, we ask ourselves, what is truth? When we struggle to, to define basic definitions such as man and woman, we ask ourselves, what is truth? Sometimes it can seem as if we live in a very confused world that lacks order, it's full of chaos, and we ask ourselves, is there a real truth? And the reality is that there is a standard of truth that's defined, real, concrete, and unchanging. And that truth is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So we have a truth. We have one that's unchanging. And his name is Jesus. But the truth is that even when the truth is clear, even when the truth is unchanging, even when the truth is strong, we struggle to abide by it. And we struggle to live by it. We struggle to stand on it. And so today, we're going to look at four truths that we see about Jesus out of John chapter 18. And so we're going to remain seated today because it is a lengthy passage uh, but we'll be reading the first half of that chapter. I apologize for the slides. They're going to be a little colorful. Um, but uh, the ones I sent, our tech guys were too small. And um, we had to change them at the last minute. So this is, this is what we got. It's, this, that's, all, that's all me. But we'll be in uh, John 18, verses 1 through 27. After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priest and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, "'Who is it that you're seeking?' Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. 
Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. When Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I told you I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let those men go. This was to fill the words he had said. I have not lost one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. At, at that, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the company of soldiers, the commander, and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus and tied him up. First they led him to Annas, since he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Caiaphas is the one who had advised the Jews that it would be better for one man to die for the people. Simon Peter was following Jesus, as was another disciple. That disciple was an acquaintance of the high priest, so he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter remained standing outside by the door. So the other disciple, the one known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the girl who was the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who was with the doorkeeper said to Peter, You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? I am not, he said. Now the servants and the officials had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing there warming themselves, and Peter was standing there with them warming himself. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus answered him. I have always taught in the synagogue and in the temple where all the Jews congregate, and I haven't spoken anything in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who heard what I told them. Look, they know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officials standing by slapped Jesus saying, Is this the way you answer the high priest? If I have spoken wrongly, Jesus answered him, give guidance about the wrong. But if rightly, why do you hit me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They said to him, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, Didn't I see you in the garden? Peter denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Pray with me this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask for clarity. We ask for understanding as we go through this, this text. God, help us to see the truths in it, Lord. There's so much here. God, please guide me as I... As I preach, and help us to see Jesus, who is the, the standard of our truth. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. So there's a lot here. John chapter 18 is, is packed. We've got some, some key events. We've got Jesus' arrest, Peter's denial. Jesus before the high priest, Jesus before Pilate, and, and ultimately carrying over to chapter 19, Jesus' condemnation and being sent to the cross. But first, I'd just like to paint a picture of how chapter 18 begins. See, chapter 18 begins with Jesus and his disciples leaving Jerusalem 
and going to the nearby Mount of Olives. And they would have crossed over the Kidron Brook, which flows at the bottom of the Kidron Valley. It's a low point between the Mount of Olives and the city of Jerusalem. And this was actually probably an, an intermittent stream. You know, it only had water during the rainy seasons. But during this time of the year, during the Passover time, when thousands of lambs were being sacrificed as part of the Passover, this brook would have contained the runoff of blood and water from the temple. As they sacrificed lambs and then washed the altar and then sacrificed lambs and then washed the altar, all this runoff would have gone down to the brook Kidron. And so as Jesus and his disciples stepped over this brook, you can see how it's a dark picture leading up to the arrest that he knows is coming, the death and suffering that he's aware of. But also don't miss this, that Jesus steps over this brook filled with the blood and water of the sacrificial lambs that point to him, the Passover lamb that points to him, these temporary sacrifices that, that were to point to the one true sacrifice that was to be the forgiveness of sins for the world. And so the symbolism and the darkness are both very evident as Jesus makes his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And when he gets there, Judas shows up with the band of soldiers. And, and the biblical writing suggests that this wasn't just 10 or 15 people. The language here suggests that it was possibly as many as, as 200 on the smaller scale. It could have been even closer to five or 600 Roman soldiers along with the temple guards. And so the, the party that comes to arrest Jesus was not small. It wasn't just a band of folks that had been gathered together. They came for a purpose. But the first point that we're going to look at today is that Jesus is the sovereign Savior. And that even though it seemed at some times that things happened to Jesus, that things may have been out of control, that other people were dictating the circumstances, Jesus acts according to plan. Jesus acts according to God's sovereign plan. We see this because it says that he went to a garden that was well known to him and his disciples, that was well known to Judas. You see, Jesus could have picked any number of places in the vicinity of Jerusalem to go to. He could have gone to a different garden on the Mount of Olives. He could have gone somewhere else outside of the, the walls of Jerusalem. But he picked this specific garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, that was known to Judas. And so we see that he's not, he's not concerned with the arrest as something to get out of. He looks to it as part of a plan. But next we see that Jesus is also in control. Notice that when the, when the soldiers come up and when, Jesus, when Judas comes up, Jesus steps out. They don't have to look for him. They don't come calling his name, this band of soldiers and temple guards that have come with torches and weapons to seek out Jesus. Jesus steps forward and says, who do you seek? 
Jesus takes initiative and shows that, that he is in control of the situation. And even more so, when they say Jesus of Nazareth, he says, I am he. And they fall back. And unfortunately, our, our English translations miss a little of the significance of this. Because it would, have, it would have sounded weird if we had read what's the literal translation. But he, he says, I am. It's what Jesus actually says. Now, whether that's just his response, I, I, I would like to think, and, and so do many commentators, that it's a, a sign of, of Jesus saying, I am, I am God. Because if we look back in the Old Testament, we see that I am is the response that God gives to Moses when Moses says, who should I say sent me when he goes back to the Israelites? And so Jesus responds with, I am. And they fall back because Jesus, Jesus is in control. Jesus has authority. He is not a victim. There's many times that we can look to the world and their picture of Jesus and we see a soft, helpless, submissive, humble man. And Jesus was humble. And Jesus was meek and mild and is still. But that doesn't take away from the fact that he's in control. Colossians 1 tells us that in him all things hold together. Jesus is in control. And we also see that Jesus is willing as a Savior, not forced. We're told in the Bible that, that Jesus at any time could have called down a legion of angels. And we find at other places in Scripture that it would have only taken one to take care of this band of soldiers and guards. And so when Jesus goes with them, he goes willing. It's not out of forced, but obedience. Notice in verse 11 that when Jesus talks to Peter and tells him to put his sword away, he says, am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus goes with this band of soldiers. He submits to arrest, not out of force, but out of obedience to the Father. Out of obedience to the Father. And so how do people respond to Jesus as a sovereign Savior? We don't have to, to read into this too much to see how two of his disciples respond very differently to Jesus as Savior. We see Judas, who was with him throughout the entirety of his ministry as, as one of the twelve, as one of Jesus' disciples, ultimately betrays Jesus. You, you see, I think that when Judas joined Jesus' disciples, I don't think that his intention was to betray him. Jesus called him. Jesus knew, right? The Bible tells us that Jesus knew that he would be betrayed. But we can only, we can only hope that, that Judas' intentions from the beginning were good. Judas saw Jesus as, as possibly someone to admire, someone he respected. Maybe he was interested in the, the power that the coming Messiah would have? We're not sure. We don't get a lot into who Judas was. The only thing that we're told really about him is by John, the apostle. And we're told that Judas was a thief and he would steal from the, the money bag that supplied the ministry. And so at some point, Judas began to doubt 
or disbelieve who Jesus was and began to look out in his own self-interest. And ultimately, his end was one of despair and sadness and grief. But we see in 1 John 2.19 that John tells us that that there will be those that, that leave the faith. But it's not because Jesus lost a believer. It's because that they were never true. And so we see that, that Judas, during his time with Jesus, as much as he may have wanted to be a true believer, a true follower in the beginning, he was fake. And he never came to that place of true belief, of true commitments to the truth of Jesus. But we also see Peter. And, and in a similar way, Peter shows doubt, possibly disbelief, looking out for his own self-interest in this very passage as well. You see, Peter showed great courage when he reached out to defend Jesus and, and chopped the ear off of the temple servant. He wasn't thinking about himself. He was just thinking, stop, I've got to stop this from happening. But Jesus stopped him was arrested. And then Peter continued to show courage as he followed Jesus into Jerusalem, right outside the trial where Jesus was being questioned and interrogated. But here we see that at some point, doubt must have began to creep in. Peter began to look after his own self-interest. He realized that he was in the presence of the people that he had just lashed out against, that he had just attacked and that his arrest was also a great possibility. And we see in this passage that Peter denies Jesus three times, just as Jesus had predicted. But I'd like to look at 1 Peter 1, chapter 13, and see what Peter later says. 1 Peter 1, chapter, or 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see where at one point Peter had put his hope in not being revealed to the adversaries at hand, in not being seen as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus, and not being found out to be the one that had cut the ear off the servant. He learns to put his hope in Jesus that's because even though Peter faltered, his hope was still securely in Jesus. We learn that Jesus' faith was true even though he faltered. And the reality is that the church contains both Peter's and Judas's. Everyone here that's a true believer is going to falter sometimes. We're going to struggle. We're going to doubt. There's going to be times when we're tempted to look after our own self-interest instead of standing up for Christ. Whether it's in times of danger or whether it's at a job or whether it's that temptation to avoid evangelism with a close friend because of what they might think. But there's also people in every group that want to be part of the group that want to be a part of the church, that want to believe in Jesus, but, but hasn't made that complete committal 
to the truth. And we're going to look at that some more, some more as we look at Pilate. But make no mistake, we're not called to be brave like Peter was in the garden. We're not called to do better. And we're not called to fix things, but we're called to faith. We're called to faith. So Jesus is the true sovereign Savior. And our part, our calling is to have faith in him. But next we see that Jesus is the true high priest. You see, throughout the Gospels, Jesus had had some rough interactions with the Jewish leadership. He had had some rough interactions with especially the priestly class. They didn't like Jesus too much um, because Jesus Jesus was very blunt in, in what he thought about the priest and what he thought about the religious leaders. And it wasn't like Jesus was going around gossiping. It wasn't that he was saying bad things about them. He was just being very truthful in what their job was and how they were falling short. And ultimately, that's what led them to hate him so much. As you see where the, the priest had all these laws and all these regulations that were in addition to God's law that would, they were kind of like rings around the commandment that God made. God's commandment was in the center and then they put these fences of other laws around God's command to keep people from breaking the actual commandments of God. If you cross the first fence, it was just a commandment of man. And so they had all these extra and additional laws that perhaps were originally from a good intent. But over time, the priestly class began to, to put so much faith in this system of laws that they forgot the heart behind it. And so where they added weight and judgment to the people that they served, Jesus brings grace and mercy. We see that in Hebrews, Jesus is our true high priest and that he brings us grace and mercy. When we trust in Jesus, it's not a burden. Jesus tells us that he, he'll take our burden. He says to us to take his yoke upon us because his burden is easy and light. He promises to be there for us, not to add to the, the struggles of life that we already struggle with so difficultly. But we also see that where the priestly class was concerned with outer purity, Jesus seeks complete purity. Just in this passage, we can see that when the religious leaders brought Jesus to Pilate's headquarters, they refused to go inside to maintain ceremonial cleanness. And so the irony of this situation is that the priests avoid breaking the ceremonial cleanliness laws while persecuting an innocent man. And so you can, see, you can see the irony there. But Jesus seeks complete purity. And this is, one of the, this is one of the points that Jesus pointed out. He says in Matthew 23, he says, You seek to clean the outside of the cup, but leave the inside filthy when talking to the, the Pharisees and the high priest. He says, You're like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you're clean, but on the inside, you're full of death and decay. But there was also 
animosity between Jesus and the priestly class because Jesus had divine authority. Don't get me wrong, the priests were appointed by God. The high priest was a position that was God-given. You can look back in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, and we can see the laws and the regulations and the guides that God had given directly to Moses regarding the priest. But at some point when the Romans came in, the priest became ensnared between the Roman emperor the Roman Empire, and the people. And so it became a game of tightrope walking to keep the people happy but not overstep their bounds and be taken out of power by the Romans that were there in Jerusalem. And so much of their remaining in authority was political. They had to keep people happy. They had to do just enough to appease the Roman government, but they also had to appease the people to avoid uprisings, to avoid negative attention. But Jesus had divine authority. We see this in, in verses such as Matthew 28. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me from heaven and earth. And then again in, in John 5, 27, Jesus talks about how the Father has given him authority. Jesus has divine, divine authority. But if we're honest the attitude of the high priest, the attitude of the priestly class is not one that's specific to only them. Because we struggle with this too sometimes. It's so easy to become concerned about the appearance. It's so easy to be concerned about what other people think of us. It's so easy to be concerned about following the rules and checking the boxes instead of the heart of what Christianity is. Instead of dying to self and serving God, instead of loving God and loving others, instead of placing Christ above all. But ultimately, we, we have to follow the example of John the Baptist, who is recorded in saying in John 3.30, he must increase and I must decrease. You see, that's the, that's the big thing here is that when Jesus came on the stage, the priestly class, was, well, they weren't ready yet to be less important. They weren't ready yet to be replaced by a true high priest. They weren't ready yet to relinquish that position of intercessor, even though the true and eternal intercessor was at hand. Even though the true and eternal high priest had come. They weren't ready to step aside. And so we must look at our own life and ensure that in every area we have the attitude of lifting Christ up above ourselves. And thirdly, we see that Jesus is the true and eternal hero. You know, I think something that stretches across all cultures, all nations, all ages, is our, our want and need for a hero. You can see this in the books and movies that we read and watch. You can see this, how we lift up celebrities. I can even see it in our four-year-old son when he gets so excited when a fire truck passes by. Because we want heroes. We all want a hero. But the truth is, is that Jesus must be 
our true and eternal hero. That doesn't mean that earthly heroes are bad. But at the top of our list, when it comes down to it, our true hero must be Jesus. Because you see, popularity is fickle and passing. Popularity is fickle and passing. Back in John 12, we see Palm Sunday. We see Jesus riding in on the donkey and all the many people laying palm branches down in front of him, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, in the name of the king, the king of Israel. And then just days later, we see at the end of chapter 18, starting in verse 39, it says this, After Pilate had said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no grounds for charging him. You have a custom that I release one prisoner to you at the Passover. So do you want me to release you, the king of the Jews? That is Jesus. They shouted back to him, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a revolutionary. You see, the people that had stood outside of Jerusalem just days earlier proclaiming Jesus as king and welcoming him in as the Messiah, the people of Jerusalem now called for his crucifixion. Popularity is fickle and passing. But this was also at the influence of the religious leaders. This people that had been so convinced of Jesus with only a few whispers from the, the priestly class and the, prayer, the Pharisees and the others in leadership called for the crucifixion of the man that they had welcomed in. But we also see that praise can be misdirected because Barabbas was not just a petty criminal. This man that, that the people called for his release instead of Jesus Barabbas was likely a zealot, a revolutionary. You can think of him as a criminal that we might make a movie about today that does some bad things, but there's a type of, of maybe romance almost or excitement, adventure to his deeds. You see, he fought against the Roman government. The Jews hated Rome because they were ruling over them. And Barabbas was this sign of opposition. Maybe even a taste that Israel could be free by the use of force. And so we see that the praise of the people can be misdirected because we often miss the power in submission. Barabbas was this example of power, refusing to submit to the Roman government. Jesus came calmly. Jesus didn't fight. Jesus submitted. But ultimately we know that his submission was not to man, but to God. But we've got to be wise and discerning and not fall into the same trap that the crowd here fell into. Just because we see someone that's powerful, that refuses to submit to those who we don't like, doesn't mean that they're the ones to be praised. There's great irony here. Because tradition has it that Barabbas' name was also Jesus. And Barabbas actually means son of the father. So you can just imagine when the crowd called out 
free Barabbas. It may have sounded something like, free Jesus, the son of the father, not Jesus of Nazareth, who was the true son of the father. I mean, you see the, the symbolism and the irony that John has painted in to this gospel. So we must look to God's truth for who he is. We can't trust in popularity. We can't trust in what the people, the praise that the people give around us. We can't trust in, in what the world says is true of God or what the world says makes a godly person. We must not trust others to define who Jesus is and how we relate to him because he has already given this to us in his word. There's many out there that would say a loving God and a loving Savior would not say this or would not do that or would not make this statement that contradicts the truth in the Bible. And so that means that we've got to know our Bibles. We've got to understand what God's truth is. We've got to know it well enough to know when people are, are telling us something untrue. We've got to know our Bible. Lastly, we see that Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the true king. I'm going to reread part of this we read at the, the beginning of our service, starting in verse 33. It said, Then Pilate went back to the headquarters, summoned Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you asking this on your own, or have others told you about me? I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied, Your own nation and the chief priest handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You are a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I am a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this and I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is truth, said Pilate. First, we see that Jesus is recognized as a king. Jesus is recognized as a king here. There's a little statement that comes across as, as one of those sarcastic comments that Pilate makes. He says, I'm not a Jew, am I? In response to Jesus' question to him. But you know, there, there may be a hint here of fear in Pilate's question to Jesus. You see, I'm not a Jew, am I? Could perhaps be interpreted, you're not my king, are you? You're not my king. Because as we read further on, we see that Jesus not only recognizes, or Pilate not only recognizes Jesus as king, but there is a lot of uneasiness that begins to grow as it goes further on to the point where it gets into chapter 19 when Jesus makes the proclamation to be the Son of God and Pilate takes a big step back. So Jesus is recognized as a king. But there is a price for allegiance to Jesus. It's not a price of work. It's not a price of money. It's not a price of something that we have to pay. 
It's a price that we have to let go of. You see, Pilate was in a dilemma. He had a struggle. In the early years of his time as, as governor in Judea, he had had some encounters with the Jewish people and religious leaders that had put him in a very interesting and awkward uh, political position. He had had his name sent up to the emperor for failure to respect the Jewish customs and for not getting along with the leadership of the Jews. And so you could say that, you know, maybe they had their eye on Pilate. And the threat to Pilate here was that if he didn't go along with the Jewish leaders here, that there could be an uprising. There could be a revolt. His name might get sent up again, and it could cost him his career. So even though Pilate recognized Jesus as king, we're told multiple times throughout the Gospels that he found no fault with him, that he saw Jesus as completely innocent. He refused to choose. He refused to make a choice and ultimately handed back Jesus, handed Jesus back over to the Jewish leaders to do with him what they wished. And we can see that history has recorded that just because Pilate attempted not to make a choice, that ultimately his lack of decision was choice in itself. Because there's, there's probably not a story of the crucifixion that does not include Pilate's name. There's definitely not one in the Bible. But what seems unique to Pilate is our struggle as well. You see, for each one of us, when we have the choice to follow Jesus, there's much at stake. There's a lifestyle at stake. There could be a career at stake. There could be friends at stake. Maybe if we commit to the truth of Jesus and we commit to following him, we have to change things. Maybe we have to change our vocabulary. Maybe we have to change what we spend our time doing. Maybe we have to change how we go about all of life. That's the price of allegiance to Jesus. It's that if we recognize him as king, then we must live our life with him as king. If we recognize him as Savior, we must live our life with him as Savior. If we recognize him as our high priest, we must see him as a high priest. Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow him and be willing to lose everything for Jesus. He's not shy about this. In Luke chapter 9, he tells us that we've got to be willing to put aside everything for the goal of following him. Now, that doesn't mean that we'll necessarily leave our family. It doesn't mean that we'll necessarily break off relationships. It doesn't mean that we will we'll do all these things. But it means that they have to come second to Jesus. It means that everything in our life has got to be subordinate to what Jesus calls us to be. So as we close today, we're faced with this question. The same question that Pilate asked, what is truth? What is truth? In a world of confusion, when we're asked, what is truth? What will our response be? When we seek to live a life that is founded on the truth, 
what is that truth going to be? The gospel must be our truth. The gospel must be our truth. That God created everything good. That he created us man and woman in his image. That humanity rebelled against God. And that rebellion allowed sin to enter into the world and created a separation between humanity and God. That it doomed us, cursed us to an eternity of punishment and hell. But that God, out of his great love and for his great name, came to earth as the God-man Jesus Christ and lived the perfect life that we were called to and died the death that we deserved. And because of that, we can stand before God forgiven and righteous, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. So as the musicians come, and as we close our service today, this is the invitation to build our life upon the truth. If you're here today and you don't know the truth, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you haven't taken that next step of committing your life to Him, of, of standing on the truth, then I invite you to do that today. There's a lot at stake. It's a big decision, but it's a great decision. You see, when we follow Jesus and we decide to make Him the foundation of our life, we may lose some things, but we gain an eternity with God and a life here on earth filled with peace and joy and a knowledge that we can trust Him through all things and that He will never fail us.